Hello, I'm Jacob Kruger, and this is the Write Your Screenplay podcast. As many of you know, we're in the process of building out a new home for the Jacob Kruger studio here in New York City. And in expectation of our January 1st move-in, this is the next in a series of podcasts exploring the many ways in which building out a space is like building out a script. Hopefully taking some of the lessons that I've learned during the build-out and applying them to writing. And today's podcast covers a topic that any screenwriter and anyone who's ever built out a space knows really well. The millions of little decisions you have to make at every moment of your build-out and on every page of your script. As those of you who have studied with me know, when you don't know what choice to make in your script, you look towards your theme to guide you. Just like when you don't know exactly what choice to make in your space, you look towards the purpose that ultimately you want that space to serve. But what do you do when your theme changes? Or when you're not really sure what your theme is yet? I recently faced this quandary while running Ethernet and HDMI and USB and microphone wiring for the online setup of our new classrooms. I knew that I wanted to build the most incredible experience possible for our online students. We work with students all over the world and I wanted them to have an experience that was just like being in the room with top-end microphones and cameras and televisions that would allow every student to see and hear and participate just as if they were live with us here in New York City. The challenge, of course, is that this ideal setup would be different for each kind of class we offered, and each decision that I had to make seemed dependent on a million other choices. Will we be using HDMI cameras, IP cameras, USB cameras? Will we be using some technology a few years from now that hadn't even been invented yet? Will the cameras always be in the same position or will they need to move for different classes? What technology would our students all over the world be comfortable with? And which of these top-end solutions would that software be compatible with? And because we only had one chance to do this the right way before the sheetrock went up and the insulation went in and running wires inside the walls became very difficult, I found myself up all night for many a night, crunching on one wiring blueprint after another, trying to figure out every possible scenario for the next 10 years, before I even taught my first class in our new space. Yeah, it was a nightmare. And then I realized, of course it was a nightmare. For the same reason, writing a script this way would be a nightmare. Because as nice as it would be to know every element you are ever going to need in your story before you wrote the first page, the truth is, you need to know the variables that you're playing with before you can learn to play with them. You have to let the story show you what it wants to be. And sometimes that means writing some scenes or running some wires that aren't going to make the final draft. And similarly, there are some things that you're just not going to realize you need until you've lived in the script for a while and really come to understand what you're building. So how do you accept the messy nature of this process as a screenwriter while still running your wires in a way that's likely to serve the final product you're building? Fortunately, 
There is a long history of great writers, all with their own solutions for this very problem. Paddy Chayevsky, the writer of Network, used to start out by writing one word above his typewriter. So for example, he might write capitalism above his typewriter before he started a project. And this was his way of focusing his theme consciously. So what Paddy Chayevsky did is he allowed himself to write anything he wanted in the first draft, as long as in some way, literal, metaphorical, personal, emotional, in some way it explored capitalism. Or he'd write a movie about love, so he'd write love above his typewriter. And he could write anything he wanted as long as it was about love. So it's important to understand that Paddy would pick a theme that really mattered to him. He didn't pick something at random like, oh, bagels. You pick a theme that you have some questions about, something that is hot for you, that creates an emotional response, something that you don't understand about the world, something you're angry about, something you dream about, something you believe. And you use that theme to focus you. So you're coming back to that theme whenever you can in your writing. It's like a north star to navigate by, not an anchor to drag you down. So when you're navigating by the north star, you don't spend your entire time looking up at the sky. If you do that, you're going to crash into a lot of trees. Instead, what you do is you look up and you decide, yeah, I'm going to head that way. And then you head that way for a while. And every once in a while, you remember, if you're feeling lost, if you're feeling unsure, to look up at that North Star. So it's not that you need to tie the North Star to you to be guided. It's more like you're looking for opportunities to get to that theme, to hit it again and again. And you could see this technique in the work of a lot of different writers. If you look at a book like East of Eden by Steinbeck, he keeps coming back again and again to the same theme. And instead of using a word like Paddy he used a question. In East of Eden, this question was, why was one offer accepted and the other refused by God? He keeps coming back to that theme structurally in the character journey to a point where it almost becomes redundant. Why was one offer accepted and the other refused? He just keeps hitting on it again and again in different ways, wrestling with it, trying to find an answer. So one way to build is by starting with a topic. And the other way to build is by asking a question, ideally a question that you don't know the answer to. So these are two ways of focusing your theme from the outside, from the beginning. The first is to write a topic you're interested in, like love and just look for the opportunities to come back there. The other is to start with a question that you don't know the answer to. And if you're using a question, you'd be much better served by a real question than a moral. A moral is much more likely to lead you to a dogmatic or a preachy place. So an aphorism like people should be nice to each other is a moral. People should be tolerant is immoral. And, or, or love always leads to happiness is immoral. And if you're a darker thinker, something like love always leads to sadness 
Well, in a way, that's also immoral. And the way it's immoral is if it's trying to convince the audience of something you already believe. What we really want to do in our writing is we want to attack our beliefs. Instead of making the statement of love only leads to sadness or love only leads to happiness, we want to ask the question of why does love lead to sadness? We want to ask the question of does love really lead to happiness? Or what's the relationship between love and sadness? Ideally, we want to be guided by a theme that we don't feel like we could tie up in a little bow right now. We want a theme that's just a little bit beyond our grasp, that we have to actually wrestle with personally. And I'm going to be honest with you, there are a lot of writers who don't do this. So if you read a book like Save the Cat, Blake Snyder is not going to talk about theme in this way. A lot of writers really do look at theme as a way of manipulating the audience to think in their way. I'm going to show you the right way to think about these things. That's how a lot of writers go into a script. And you can do that. And some audiences will accept that. And if you're really good, some audience may even some audiences may even come around to thinking that way. But it's also very likely that you're just going to end up preaching to the choir. And more importantly, your writing process isn't going to teach you anything about yourself and isn't going to be all that much fun for you because it's only going to take you to the things and the places that you already know. What we really want to do if we want to take ourselves and our characters and our audiences on a journey that they don't expect, that takes them further than they expected to go, is we want to ask the questions and attack the beliefs that we hold. We want to take ourselves to some place that we didn't know we can go and then trust that the audience is going to go with us. With my own writing, I want to feel like I'm searching for an answer for a question that's so hard that I probably can never answer it. A question that's hot for me. And when you pick something that's hot for you in that way, for something that's broken in you in that way, that you just can't get your head around. It also adds an immense amount of tension to your script. Because most likely the character also doesn't know how to solve it. And then what that allows you to do, then what you can do is around your characters. You can create opposing themes that guide them along their ultimate journey. So if, for example, you know that your movie is about love, you can write a character that is totally open-hearted and only suffers. You might write another character whose heart is closed, but everybody loves him. You might write a character who doesn't need love or doesn't think they need love. And you might write a character who has the biggest wall, but when you climb it, you find their love is absolute. You might write the character whose love is conditional and who's cool with that and who doesn't think it's a problem. And in these ways, your characters can start to embody these themes. Or in another treatment, those themes might become different movements of a single character's journey. A movement where his heart is open and he only suffers. A movement where his heart is closed but everybody loves him. 
a movement where he starts to believe that he doesn't need love. And in that way, those themes start to lead you towards your acts. If you think of a film like There Will Be Blood, which we've been discussing in several of my recent podcasts, it's born of this dialectic between capitalism and church. These two opposing themes, symbolized by the two characters at the center of the story. The first is the oil man, Daniel Plainview, who is the embodiment of capitalism. He trades his son for a brother, and when his brother turns out not to be his brother, he tries to buy his son back. When the grown child tries to break off to form his own company, the father cuts off all ties to him. Because that would make you my competitor. Nearly everything the character of Daniel Plainview does or says occurs in terms of good old American capitalism. A system that puts money before love and before relationships. But Daniel Plainview is also a real character that lives and breathes. So he has a lot of qualities that have nothing to do with capitalism. For example, he has a longing for relation. He wants family. When the man who he believes to be his brother shows up, this guy who never wants to chat with anyone outside of a business deal is suddenly blah, 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 blah. He wants to talk and talk and talk. This is a guy who wants to transform America. He has this beautiful speech in an early draft of the script about putting bread on every, on every table. And never again will people be without drinkable water or education. He sees himself as a transformative force. And in this way, he also embodies the other side of capitalism. But above all, he loves his son. That has nothing to do with capitalism. And it might not be 100% clear in the movie. But as we're going to discuss in a moment, it's 100% clear in the script. In this way... As much as capitalism is the inspiration for the character and the North Star by which he's guided, it doesn't capture the whole character. It just inflects major character traits. You still have to do the emotional work as a writer to get in touch with who the character truly is. The moment when he shoots his brother doesn't have much to do with capitalism. It has something to do with something much deeper about betrayal about being lied to, beating the preacher, Eli, who represents church, to death with a bowling pin, may capture symbolically what P.T. Anderson believes capitalism has done to church in America. But on a deeper character level, it has a hell of a lot more to do with Daniel's rage than it does with his business prospects. Theme to a writer is like super objective to an actor. It drifts over everything, affecting every moment, consciously or subconsciously. You don't have to force it. You just have to remember it's there. And suddenly, you'll find that this simple theme is even driving the structure of your story. In There Will Be Blood, the force of capitalism in Daniel squares off against the force of church in Eli. And just as Daniel's ideals are corrupted by his unwavering pursuit of capitalist power, so too are Eli's ideals 
corrupted by his unwavering pursuit of church power. And the structure of the movie is simply that church makes capitalism tell the truth, and capitalism makes church tell the truth about his corruption, and then capitalism destroys church. And with it himself, Daniel Plainview, as America, drains his own milkshake. It's that simple. Now, what's interesting about There Will Be Blood is that there is actually another theme of top of capitalism versus church, and that is the theme of blood. The theme of blood is the theme that infuses everything. And I don't know if P.T. Anderson knew this from the start or whether he discovered it along the way, but I do know that oftentimes the real theme is a destination we can only reach by taking the journey. There are three kinds of blood in There Will Be Blood. There is the blood of relation. Are you my son or a bastard in a basket? Are you my brother? Then there's the blood of the lamb, the blood of Christ, which is captured in that unforgettable scene in which Daniel begs Eli, give me the blood, Eli, give me the blood, after confessing to abandoning his boy. And finally, there is the blood of oil, the blood of capitalism. There is the literal blood that flows every time they go to the well, every time they try to build something better. Someone is hurt, someone dies, someone is maimed. This is the blood of capitalism, the lives, the pain that it costs to build a country. So how do you arrive at the real theme? Sometimes what happens is you start off with a theme that you think is totally simple and clear, and then the character takes over and starts to reveal things that just don't fit, but that you know are true. And the nature of this is even clearer in the script of There Will Be Blood than it is in the film, because so much was cut. But there was an extensive subplot in which you're watching Daniel and H.W. working together. You're watching H.W. build out the well for his father. There are scenes of Daniel praising his son, depending on his son, and you realize this is not just about capitalism. This is a family enterprise, and underneath all of this, there is a love for his son that transcends all of this business. These were the scenes in which the love for the son is established. And one reason some people disconnect with this movie is because they cut those scenes out. And while those scenes might not have had much to do with capitalism, they had everything to do with what made Daniel human. Without those scenes, some people didn't get that Daniel loved his son. And if you don't get that, at the point when Daniel abandons that boy on the train, you're not thinking, what a tragedy. You're thinking, what an asshole. And suddenly, you're checked out of this movie. If you think, when Daniel says, you're a bastard in a basket, it's because he cares only about money rather than because he feels betrayed by the boy that he loves, then this movie becomes pretty much unwatchable. And that's the thing with theme. You can let it guide you, but you've got to hold it loosely in your hand. Otherwise, it will drag the life out of your characters. Sometimes that means giving yourself the freedom to write things that feel true even if they don't relate so clearly to the theme you're building. And sometimes it means giving yourself the freedom to realize the theme you think you're building 
is only the surface of what your movie is about. You're writing a movie about capitalism versus church, and then suddenly you realize that there's this other theme under the surface, a theme of love and family. There's another subplot from the script of There Will Be Blood that got cut out of the film. That Daniel is impotent. And of course, this is pretty darn important. The guy who builds big wells that spew oil and ends up disowning his adoptive son can't have children of his own. That's pretty big. And you might start to wonder, as a writer, if this was your script, what does that have to do with capitalism? And you start to realize, you might have thought you were writing a movie about capitalism versus church, but you're actually writing something bigger. And now you have to find a way of speaking this theme to yourself that creates a big enough umbrella to cover everything, that's enough to hold all these sub-themes together, that you're not just writing about capitalism versus church, that you're writing about blood. This is one of the most common experiences that I have in my own writing. And if you're really wrestling with a question you don't know the answer to, it's likely you're going to end up in this place as well. Even if you're really focusing on a topic, it is likely that this will end up happening. And the reason is you don't know the answer. So there's no real way to anticipate where the question will lead you. That's what makes it exciting, but also infuriating. <coughs> it's like starting therapy. You show up and you think, I just have this little tiny problem. And then after a couple of months, you realize it goes back to something that happened when you were three. And you thought it was just a weird thing that you were doing. But there's a bigger theme that envelops it. Sometimes, similarly, in the process of writing, you discover, oh, my theme is not big enough to contain everything that I've written. An example of this is American Beauty. If you've watched my seven-act structure lecture on American Beauty, then you know that when Alan Ball started writing American Beauty, he was in a pretty miserable place. He was working on a crappy sitcom, and he hated the lead actor, and here he is, and he's got the thing that every writer wants. He's got the big staff job, and he's miserable as hell. And nothing means anything. And he's wasting his time on this stupid spec script that he knows nobody is ever going to make called American Beauty. His focal theme is American Beauty, the name he's gotten from a type of rose that's prone to rot. And he wanted to use this rose as a metaphor to talk about the nihilistic meaninglessness of the American dream. In this early draft of the script, Kevin Spacey's character does sleep with the little girl. In that version of the story, the army guy next door ends up testifying against his own child so that the kids go to jail for the crime that he's committed. And the structure of that story is a whodunit. Who killed Lester Burnham? You can still see the bones of that story under the final draft of the film. That's the movie that Alan Ball thought he was making. But in the process of making it, he discovered some hope. He discovered that 
even as he started to behave more and more like a child, Lester Burnham, the character, began to feel good about himself. That his selfish, nervous breakdown actually led somewhere beyond where Alan Ball expected it to go. This was going to be a movie not just about selfishness and rot, but also about transcendence and transformation. And that whole theme of the nihilistic whodunit became a whole lot less important. It's still there in the structure. Remember that scene where they're all heading home to kill Lester and every single character has a reason to do it? It's like Clue. He thought he was writing the nihilistic version of Clue. And instead, it turns out, he's really writing a movie about hope. About finding real beauty in the most unlikely of places. He thought he was writing about the rose that rots. But he's writing about the rose that's beautiful as well. When that happens, sometimes as a writer, you don't have to do a thing. Sometimes the movie is working and you're pleasantly surprised to find it's about a lot more than you thought it was. In these cases, you don't have to get all intellectual about it. You don't have to be so serious about it. You can accept the gifts that the screenwriting gods have given you. You could trust that your subconscious mind is taking you somewhere interesting. Check to make sure that everything you're writing is emotionally truthful and that your story is coming across. And if you follow your instincts in this way, if it's working and people are getting it, you might never have to consciously name the theme. You might just need to feel it. But other times you're not sure what's true. You have multiple versions. He might do this or he might do that. And they both feel truthful. Because you haven't made a decision yet. You don't actually know what it's about. When that happens, every possibility starts to feel possible. And that is the truly terrifying thing in writing. When every possibility starts to feel possible, it becomes incredibly difficult to make decisions. Which brings me back to my wiring conundrum. Because ultimately my decision was to spend a little bit of extra money and run some extra wires even though they might turn out to be redundant or unnecessary. Because I don't know exactly what the purpose is yet, or exactly what's going to work yet, or exactly what these rooms are going to become over the next 10 years. But I know this is important to me, that it's something worth exploring. And that even if I don't know what to do with every wire at the moment, I'll figure it out eventually. Sometimes that's the process of writing as well. They're all good wires, but some of them are leading to places they need to lead, and some will hang there and never be used. In a screenplay, those wires need to be removed because we only have 95 to 105 pages, and we don't want to distract from the things that are actually important. In my studio, on the other hand, some of them can just hang out in the walls. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. 
If you'd like to study with me in New York City, live online, through our ProTrack one-on-one mentorship program, or our international retreats, please check out my website, writeyourscreenplay.com. Mm-hmm.